Heavenly Father, it is so good to know that here in this room, it is well with our soul to know that you are indeed with us. We thank you for this moment. We treasure these moments. We ask that you give us strength until we meet again. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Please be seated. That's such a great song, isn't it? It's just such a heartwarming, real connection. Uh, it, it actually places my mind in preparation for what's going to happen next week, which is a celebration of Easter next week, a celebration of the time where everything got changed and the world that we know was transformed and Christ came to this earth, died and resurrected, and we are going to celebrate that next week. So I want to encourage you to join us for that. It starts on Thursday night, Thursday night. Friday night and Sabbath morning. And if you have energy and you want to register for the energy level, then come and join us Sabbath afternoon for a hike up Sanitas. Um, and uh, we'll have a surprise for those at the top there. There are lots of little postcards over there on that table. And uh, you're welcome to, to go there and, uh, and collect one of those postcards. It has all the details inside there about uh, the Easter services next week. And I encourage you to invite your friends and to come and join us for that. Uh, as soon as we finish that series, we're going to start a whole new series. As soon as Easter's done, we're going to start a whole new series on the art of manliness. Isn't that good? The art of manliness. I'm planning to grow a beard for that one. Um, I may stick it on. It may be faster than growing a full beard. But we're, the art of manliness, we've got four weeks. And uh, those four weeks, I'm just letting you know that you may think it's just about men. The title kind of alludes to that. But it's actually a little bit broader and then in August, we're going to have a whole series on, on, for women and focusing on women as well, and that'll be in August. So you've got four weeks. Everybody's welcome. Families are welcome as well. You'll enjoy it. And uh, we kick it off with uh, James Christensen and then Tom Eichmann, James Christensen and myself will finish the series off. So we're looking forward to that, and I encourage you to join us for that, and that will be the art of manliness straight after that. Um, just one quick announcement. Uh, we do have, uh, you know, a, a van outside apparently, a blue Mazda M MPV, and their sliding door is open. So if you are driving a blue Mazda van, you left your sliding door open. If not, you should have been at church. <laughs> and you would have heard that announcement. And now you're up somewhere on Sanitas, you'll come down and your van will be gone. <sighs> Lesson learned. Come to church next time. You know, what can I say? What can I say? All right, so, and then the most important thing that I wanted you to remember today is that we do have visiting with us David and Valerie Smith. I'm going to ask them awkwardly just to stand up right there, and if they could just stand up, yeah, just stay standing for a second. Yeah, all right. They didn't bring their three kids, their entire tribe with them today, but they are here for this weekend. And so I'd encourage you to go meet them after the services, uh, join with them in Bible study classes. And I'm encouraging only the nice people to do that. You're like, that, that's me, right? No, if you have to ask yourself that, you know you're not the person to go meet them. So everybody else, go and introduce yourselves to David and Valerie Smith and make sure you're connected to them and let them know what your passions are for this church ministry-wise. We're hoping that David and Valerie are going to join in, joining us uh, officially on May 23 um, as our family life pastor. And we're really excited for that. So that's going to be really good. The only thing that could stop that from happening is you. Uh, so there you go. 
it should be all okay. All right. Uh, I want to make sure everybody's got a worship guide. We all need a worship guide. So if you haven't got a worship guide, if you snuck in past one of the greeters, then then I think our deacons, Johnny and, and uh, Elder Peter there, will. there are hands up there. So if you want to make sure that everybody has got a worship guide, uh, just keep your hands up. Thanks, Thomas. Right on the front here as well. You'll need the worship guide because inside the worship guide are our recalibrate questions. If this is the first time you've ever been here, you'll notice that we're going to refer to these. And there's also a great Connect card, which is perforated nicely for you to be able to fill in. You don't know what to do with that Connect card when you're finished. You can place it inside the blue watering can there. Or when the tithes and offerings are collected at the end, then you're welcome to also place it inside there as well, and, uh, and we will collect it and stay connected with us. So any kind of information, this of course is not our full bulletin, it's just our worship guide. Our full bulletin comes out by email every week, and if you want that, you can sign up for that, and that is about 400 pages long, so it should take you a long time to be able to read and to recover through it. Right, we are in the end of the series on prophets and kings. Can you believe it? Oh my goodness, it has been a long journey, right? It felt like... 800 years had gone by, just like that, didn't it? Just like, boom, and it just happened over all these weeks. Prophets and Kings, we've been in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and last year we did First and Second Samuel, and so we really got to understand this. The children of Israel are over here in where? Oh, such enthusiasm. Exile, yeah. They're in exile, they're in exile, terrible calamities, they're in exile, and they're in exile because they're looking all the way over here and saying, oh my goodness, this is where Joshua was and the judges, and we had all these great kings because we didn't like the idea that God should lead us through judges, so we thought we should be like empires, and they chose kings, King David, King Saul, and then Solomon came along, and he made it so incredibly beautiful, and of course, took it to another level of sexual power and control, which we're so glad that people today don't rule that way, and, and so it continued all the way through the kings and their battling, and the United Kingdom was united, broke apart, became the south and the north, and then eventually, as we learned last week, the, southern, the northern kingdom dissipated, scattered to the four winds, all gone. And what we're left with today is the Judean kingdom, the southern kingdom, all of them, they're just surviving. And there's this constant tension all the time, which took place right at the very beginning with the kings with Samuel and Saul, because Samuel was very upset with the people. They were like, we don't want you to be our ruler. We want a king. And God said, Samuel, I know. I know how you feel. <laughs> They're constantly rejecting me too. So give them a king. So he chooses a king. But Samuel never lets Saul forget that he is still under Samuel and also under God in many respects with that. And that tension between Samuel and Saul, between the prophet and the kings, exists all the way through. Where the prophets are constantly coming forward and saying, got to go back to God, got to go back to God. And the kings are constantly coming along saying, but I want it to be beautiful. I want to have a great castle. I want to have a great kingdom. I want to own all the land. I want to be in control of everything. And this tension between them never, never goes away. The difficulty is that they have these promises all the time, right? David's over here and God says to him, David, I'm going to make your kingdom go on forever. And so David's like, well, there's nothing really I can do wrong. <laughs> God made this promise and now let me see if I can help fulfill it, which is the same problem 
that we do with all the promises in the Bible. We call promises sometimes prophetic utterances or prophecy or stories where they really explain this is what's going to take place, a promise will take place, and we misinterpret them all the time because we're human. I mean, think about the classic promises that were made to Abraham. Abraham, you're going to be the father of everybody. You're going to have a great nation. And so he leaves from, from his family area, and, and God said to him, remember, leave your family behind, go. And what does he do? He leaves, but he takes with him his nephew Lot and his servant, and he tries all sorts of things. Even when God comes and tells him, by the way, you're going to have a son, and your son, you know, Isaac, and he's like, no, I've got Ishmael. I'm happy. <laughs> I don't need any more kids. This is fine. Because we are interpreting the promises the way we think it should be interpreted. Moses did the same thing. He thought, well, you know what? God told me I'm going to take the people out of here. Let me go kill the Egyptians. Let me use my military knowledge that I had by learning under Pharaoh all sorts of great strategies. And so, of course, that didn't work out. David himself misunderstood it. And then you get to the Messiah. Promises, promises, promises of the Messiah. And when he comes along, people don't get it. You're not the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be better looking. It was going to be different. He was going to at least have four horses and a chariot. You couldn't be the Messiah. No, we were going to be elevated. We were going to build Jerusalem again. You couldn't be the Messiah. And that tension of interpreting things happens all the way through. In 1844, there was a group of people who got together thinking they understood the promise that God had given that he was coming back and they got it all wrong. It's a good thing that we understand all the future though, right? that we understand everything that's gonna take place, how the whole world's gonna end. I can actually write it out with a little chart, pinpoint every single element. You could go to sleep right now and just wake up and I'll tell you how it's gonna happen. Maybe, maybe we need to trust God and understand that God is the one who fulfills the promises. And maybe we just have spent too much time trying to interpret them ourselves and have diverted ourselves from the most difficult thing, which is to trust God. So first question that comes up, and it's your first recalibrate question. So you open up your worship guide, and you go down to here to the recalibrate questions, and it says this. If trust is so important, why is growing it so difficult? If trust is so important, everybody agrees this, why is growing it so difficult? So turn with me to Second uh, Kings, and just for those who are visiting here and uh, new, or those of you who forgot that I've said this 4,000 times, I, I will never stop saying this, there are Bibles in the pew <laughs> in front of you. And you are welcome to take those Bibles with you. You're welcome to actually open them up, novel idea, write in them with the pen. You could take the pen as well. You know, it's not one of those situations where you go home and you suddenly realize the pen from Boulder Seventh-day Adventist Church is still in your hand. And you're like, oh no. And then you think you have to come back next week to return it. Yes, come back, but not to return it. You can keep the pen. And the Bible's there for you to be able to mark up because here's the thing. I, I really do believe this. When you write in it, when you mark it, you actually start to own it. When you read it, you start to remember it. So do that. Put it back in the pew or take the Bible with you. Share it with a friend. But we're on 2 Kings, which is basically page 223 chapters 18 to 20. How many of you guys had a chance to read all the chapters? A lot of chapters? Yep, 
great. So you had some kind of preparation behind there. We're going to fly through these chapters. There's a lot of stuff to cover inside it, but we're beginning in chapter 18 of 2 Kings. So it begins here. Today, for sure, we have to understand this. This is their last-ditch attempt, all right? Remember this? Israel's gone. Judah's looking at the situation. They're like, oh, my goodness. They're scattered. We have no idea where they are. And they're saying, we've got to be good. We've got to hold on to God because we cannot survive. We're going to be scattered just like Israel did as well. So Hezekiah comes onto the scene. It says here in chapter 18, verse 3, and he did, and this is a miracle, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Ashereth. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushathren. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him. Hezekiah was a king like no other king all the time way back to David. They say he wasn't like Solomon. He wasn't like any of the other kings. He was like David. And he comes along and he does this huge reformation in the land here. But verse five, which I just read to you, is a pivotal verse. It says there, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Did you know that's the first time in the whole book of Kings, one and two, the word trust appears. Isn't that interesting? First time it appears. It's not that it hasn't been used in the Bible and translated in English in different ways like faith or rely or confidence, but this time it's about trust because the story of Hezekiah is about him trusting God and the Syrians playing on that word of trust all the way through. It's this great word that actually carries all the way through the stories. So let me set it up for you so you understand exactly where it is in case you didn't read the passages entirely here. Hezekiah, he's a good king, and he, of course, attacks all the Philistines. He attacks them so strongly that he gains land back. So he's doing well. Everybody's really happy with that. Assyria, though, under Sennacherib, hears about this and feels, no, 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 no. Judah, you should not be stepping out of your place. You should stay where you are. So he goes down and he attacks all those cities that Hezekiah had done, and he takes them all back. He returns them to the Philistines, and then he comes to Jerusalem, and he surrounds Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is in a very unique place, surrounded by mountains, very strategic at that time, really, really great. So he surrounds him because he's going to starve them out. And he, Hezekiah realizes this. It says here in the first 13 of chapter 18, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib came, surrounded around him, and then Hezekiah sent word to the king of Assyria in Lachish, saying... I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. Now, he's trusting God, and he's understanding that God is with him, and he's understood that God has not left him. But right now, he sees this army outside, and he says, look, I shouldn't have done as far as I did. You are the superpower. I apologize. What do you want? And the king says, give me all your gold. (laughs) Sounds like a pirate. Give me all your gold. And, and he gives him all his gold, takes all his gold away, and Hezekiah has to like strip all the temple doors. I mean, remove gold everywhere. It's a, it's, it's a real tragedy for him. But of course, wealth is not enough for Assyria. So Assyria starts to send these negotiators to go see the negotiators from King Hezekiah. The kings are not talking to each other. The first negotiator comes and says, the great king of Assyria has a word for you. In other words, you are not great, 
we are great, and I have a word for you. And he starts to articulate all these heavy words to them. And it's a great conversation that takes place starting in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse, here, verse 19. And Rabbishah said to them, Say to Hezekiah thus, says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you see that? Remember how the, the prophet is trying to tell you that King Hezekiah has learned to trust God. So Assyrians come along and they use the same word, the same word trust, and say, what are you really trusting? And then he begins a speech, and it's pretty brutal. He, and if you were negotiating, you would be put up right now. You'd be really upset with this because as a negotiator, you have to stay calm. You have to stay collected. And here comes the enemy, and the enemy says, who are you trusting? Are you trusting the Egyptians? They're no use to you. And then he says, are you trusting God? And I say, they're no use to you. God won't be any use to you. And then he teases him so badly, he says to him, listen, I know the battle's pretty rough here, so here's the thing. I'm going to give you 2,000 horses, and you just have to ride them against us, knowing that Hezekiah doesn't even have 2,000 men to ride the horses. So it's like, I'm going to give 2,000 horses. You can't even do anything with them. Why are you even thinking of going to battle against us? How dare you? Just surrender entirely to us. Give us Jerusalem because that's what it is. Well, chapter 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. He is really upset about this. And he's not upset just about the fact that the guys have come along and threatened horses or mocked their alliances or anything like this. He's upset what they said in verse 25. And look with me in chapter 18, verse 25. Moreover, this is what the guy in Assyrian say to him, moreover, is it without the Lord that I come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And he's like, what? He's saying this, the Syrians have come along saying, by the way, your God told us to come and get you. So that's what we're doing. We're just following your God. So don't go and trust your God right now because he told us to come and attack you. And when the guys hear this, they're really scared. So they say to him, hey, um, could you uh, stop speaking Hebrew? Uh, could you start speaking Aramaic? because I really don't want anybody else to hear what you're saying right now. Which you know that when you're, when you're negotiating, you've just lost all authority at this point. There's nothing on the card anymore. There's no, no, no card that you can pull out right now. And the guy says to them, really, you want me to speak Aramaic? Well, verse 28 says, and he called out in a loud voice, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Do not let Hezekiah make you this way. Do not listen to Hezekiah all in Hebrew, so that all the people could hear that he indeed was running the game right now. And they, like I'm just, doesn't know what to do. He goes back and tells the king, the king hears this, and he just rips his clothes and says, there's no hope for us. Well, what happens next is pretty phenomenal. Because what takes place is that Hezekiah, trusting in God, prays this most beautiful, powerful prayer, well worth you guys reading, exploring this prayer here. He prays this prayer, and then he sends word to Isaiah, and sometimes you, you realize that, you know, the Bible was written with all these different books, and you don't realize how many books are overlapping each other, but 
there are so many of these prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, who are overlapping the stories that are taking place inside here. But Hezekiah sends word to, to Isaiah, says to him, I need you to tell me what is the word from God. And Isaiah says to him, listen, God is going to deliver you. Deliver your kingdom, deliver you. He's going to get rid even of the king of Assyria. Everything's going to be fine. And Hezekiah is like, done. <laughs> I accept. And it says there in verse 35 of chapter 19, that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Syrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, those, these were all the dead bodies that were lying around. And he is just overwhelmed with this. He can't believe that for everything that he had, he just trusted God and it's all done. 185,000 woke up, the Syrians wake up, the rest of them and they're like, no hope for us and they leave. Here's the interesting thing about this. God works this miracle at nighttime, right? And I know some people are kind of weird about that. Like, what? why is God working this out at nighttime? It's like, I, I mentioned this this week to a few elders that we have, a, we have blinds that come down in the church, and you see the blinds are down here. And as the summer comes on, which is not today, as the summer comes on, um, the heat will come through, and more of those blinds will come down. And on that side and this side, it'll become a little bit darker in here. So somebody came apparently and asked whether, what was my theology of darkness? And I was like, I don't know, I didn't know there was one. Yes, apparently, I have a theology of darkness. You want everybody to be in darkness. I'm like, no, uh, sunshine, heat, really sweaty. Uh, that's all, nothing else. Uh, so I'm just letting you know, in case anybody goes away, say, it's so dark in there. <laughs> it's like the bat cave. I know, wouldn't that be cool? No, uh, so <laughs> it's, 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 that's the only reason inside there. But in the Bible, Darkness, obviously, you know, obviously we often think of light and darkness and the metaphor inside there, but God often does some amazing things in darkness, and he did this during the night. In Exodus, it talks about the angel of the Lord coming at midnight to all of the firstborn. It says there that when Moses came and he struck the water, that during the night, the winds came all night long and pushed it away, and Jesus himself, when he resurrected early in the morning, in the darkness, nobody was there, because what God is trying to say is this, when you can't see it and you can't explain it, God does it. You don't understand it, you weren't there, there was no witnesses, God does it. He's saying, I don't need anybody to see me doing my stuff. I just need you to see the results. Hey, I'm resurrected. And that's what we're gonna celebrate next week, that God came, died, and resurrected. And there weren't tons and tons of people around to see it because God's saying, I just do it. <laughs> I am, and I am able to do that. And that's what God is constantly trying to push us in that way. So Hezekiah is really happy with this. He's in cloud nine. Everything's going well. And then all of a sudden, he gets really sick. He has some kind of terrible disease come upon him. And he knows that, talks to the prophet. He knows that his time is up. And so he weeps and he begs for his life. And God says to him, well, okay, Hezekiah, you want extra time? I'll give you extra time. And gives him, it says here in the Bible, 15 extra years in verse 20. And I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you from the city, the hand of the king of Assyria. Everything will be done inside there. And get this. In those 15 years, he gives, you know, has a relationship with his wife and has a son called Manasseh. And Manasseh is going to become the most evil king that you could ever imagine. Man, if only Hezekiah died when he was supposed to die life would have been different, right? 
And then on top of that, Hezekiah, in those 15 years, enjoying those 15 years, enjoying the splendor of the security that he has, invites a, a glorious little group of Babylonians, not understanding anything's going on. The Babylonians turn up, and Hezekiah opens up his entire kingdom. Isaiah comes to him in verse 14. He says, then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say to you? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, oh, they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And Isaiah says to him, you stupid man. God gave you 15 years not to destroy the empire, not to give birth the son, not to invite the Babylonians. And you gotta watch this because this text is gonna pop up when we do Daniel. When we go through the book of Daniel in the fall and we're gonna look at what happens here, this is a very important text. There's more stuff inside here. It says this in verse 16, uh, verse 17 down here. And, and some of your sons, this is what Isaiah says to him, and some of your sons shall be born to you, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. We're gonna look at that as well. Remember this verse. Who do you think he's referring to? that is gonna become a eunuch that's gonna be serving in Babylon at this time here. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, well, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Really? Until you read the text, because it gives you the insight. And remember this, when you're reading narratives in the First Testament, whenever something's repeated, it's really significant. It's not that the authors were like, oh, I don't know what to say, let me just say it again. It's significant, and then, Whenever you have a moment where it tells you in his heart, in his mind, in his thought, it is telling you something that nobody else knew at the time. It's giving you insight into the motivation behind this. And he says this, for he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days, I don't care. I don't care that the empire is going to be lost. I don't care that Judah is going to be destroyed. I don't care because you know what? He told me that for my days, it's going to be fine. Doesn't that give you an interesting insight into who Hezekiah is? With all that extra time, all he did is he created terrible pain and terrible conflict for the kingdom. And all the time, Isaiah is constantly, as a wise prophet, as a wise politician, saying to him, you are pushing in the wrong way. But his trust in God has dissipated a little bit. See, it's very easy for us to be able to choose God and to trust God. But sometimes, and despite ourselves, God chooses us. And he works with us. And he works with us even when we're like Hezekiah, a good king who, when he has extra time, messes it up. And we don't understand when people pass away and when they live and when they don't. It doesn't make sense to us. We always pray for more life, don't we? We always pray that God gives us more strength, that we wake up in the morning and we have less aches in our bones and that we're stronger today and we have a better day and a better week because we pray for life more and more. And God says to you, every time I give you life, what are you doing with it? Are you showing the Babylonians your empire? Are you bringing around children that are gonna cause problems for others? Mm. Yes. <laughs> what are we doing with it? These are difficult things that we have to wrestle through, that we have to talk about, that God has actually said inside here, I'm still working with you, even though you understand that trust is not about you. The difficulty is that trust can often, and we do, 
we make it a selfish thing and we make it a personal thing. And God's saying trust is actually global. It's about understanding that God has the big picture all the time and he's connected with you. This takes us to our second question today, um, which is listening to each other is hard enough at times, right? So how do we learn to listen to God more? Listening to each other is hard enough. And I, I know that you would probably say that you don't have this problem, but it is difficult. Sometimes you're in conversations and you're not really listening to each other and we cause ourselves problems. And then we say, well, we need to listen to God more. And in the next few chapters, listening is really important. Listening to God all the way through. Of course, you know, one king, good king, doesn't mean that there's gonna be a great king that follows. <laughs> That's what we've learned over First and Second Kings. And naturally, we had a great King Hezekiah. He did pretty well. Other than a little snafu at the end there, he did pretty well all the way through. But then he has his son, Manasseh. And his son, Manasseh, is a disaster. And he lives for a long time, and he reigns for a long time as well. And his son, Ammon, comes along, and he's equally a disaster. They're evil. And get this. You, you may think that God is being really unfair here and saying, well, I'm going to call some judgment calls on this because it's so bad. But the people went along with him. He was king for a long time. Because you've read First and Second Kings, whenever they got upset with the king, what did they do? They killed him in the middle of the night. <laughs> All the time. But this king, as evil as he was, they just let him go on and on and on. And Manasseh does a disaster one after another. Ammon comes along. Eventually, they get fed up with Ammon. They kill him, get rid of him, and we have the little king called Josiah. Now, Josiah's only eight years old, so I'm going to ask today, let me get that microphone. Thanks, Jordan. Who here is around eight or nine years old? Yes. Come on up. Yes. Come on up. Anybody else? Eight or nine years old around that age? Come on up. Yep. Come on, Emmanuel. Anybody else? Josiah. Oh, how old are you? Yeah, nine? Oh, you gotta come on up, man. Oh, I see. You're like, if I just hide in, oh, all the way up here. Yeah, come on up this side. That's great. Stand in the light. That's super. All right. Josiah was, oh, more coming up. Great. Anybody else wanna be eight or nine? Oh, yeah, easy. All right. Of course, Gordy would. All right. <laughs> so Josiah is eight years old kind of around your age, this is, he is now king of the empire. And this king was just superb, brilliant, brilliant king. And as he was, he, he read the Bible, he found the scrolls, they found the scrolls and they read the Bible to him and he listened to the word of God. And when he listened to the word of God, he tore his clothes and he said, this is not acceptable. Tearing your clothes, don't do that. I know there's temptation to rip your clothes, but don't do that. So I'm gonna ask you in a second, I'm gonna ask you, and I'm gonna pass the microphone to you, and I'm gonna ask you this, one question. I'm gonna ask you, if you were Josiah today, and you were in charge of this church today, what would God tell you to make it better? Mm, so how do you make the church better? Who wants to go first? Oh, I like this, this is good. They always encourage you to bring kids up for moments like this. I'm gonna give you the microphone here. Okay. Yeah, and you gotta hold it really close, like on your chin. Okay. Okay, and you look at them, and you tell them, this is what I think would make church better. What do you think? I think that God would say that I say that everybody reads their Bible more. Ooh, 
everybody reads their Bible more. Okay, you're listening to this because if he decrees it, <laughs> I'm scared what they're going to say. If he decrees it, we've got to do this. Are you ready? What would you think God would say? Hold it close to your chin. No idea? About any church? Um, well, my church. Um, maybe... To have more people up front. Oh, all right. Have more people up front. Good choice. All right. Here you go. Hold it to your chin. You can rest it on your chin. That's actually the easiest way to remember where to hold it. What do you think God would say to make this church better? Not bad. Not bad. It's a start. <laughs> Do you think more sweets, as Pastor David was saying? Like potatoes? No, no, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> you want to come back? I'll come back to you? All right. All right, we'll come back to you, Jane. I think that God would ask more people to engage in the service instead of just sitting there. All right. Uh, hired. <laughs> I think God would tell me um, how to make a church, this church better by having his commandments almost all around the church. Awesome. Good, good. Remembering everything that God has said. Emmanuel, one more, and then Renee. I think that God would ask people to um, follow the commandments. Good, absolutely. This is good. You, you're hearing this? Because this is tall order now, Thomas. <laughs> all right. Got an idea? No. All right, all right. You want more? And you've got to look at them when you tell them because you're, you're Josiah and you're telling the people. All right, they want to hear it. You don't need electronics in church because you're in the house of the Lord. Okay, okay. My phone's down there. I'm just saying, all right, all right. All right. You want to go? All right. Thank you so much for coming. Give them a round of applause. All right. Awesome. Awesome. You can go back to your seats now. Man, some prophetic words there. Oh, that is so true. You do not need your electronics in church unless you're reading your Bible in them or texting the pastor directly deep theological questions about light not darkness, but absolutely, absolutely, that's good. And to get engaged, to be more involved, oh my goodness, what are you gonna do with that? That's what they felt like. An eight-year-old king, an eight-year-old boy, read the word of God, heard from the word of God, and spoke truth to their life. And they repented of their ways, like you are repenting of your ways. Because you're gonna volunteer to do so much more now. Right? I expect that Connect card's gonna get filled in. I don't even know. We won't know what to do with all the things that you want to do to get involved in the services and following God and all the laws that God has shared and everything that he's sharing with you. I mean, it's just gonna be overwhelming. Monday morning, I can't wait. I'll even start looking at them tonight. You can start right now. Just take the pens, fill in the Connect card, and go for it. Fill it all in because 
That's what the people of Israel did. That's what they did when Josiah laid to them and said, listen, we have messed it up. And it says here in the story here that for the, for the first time, they remembered the Passover. Now, it doesn't mean that they weren't celebrating Passover, you know, as a small community, but the king and the kingdom wasn't celebrating Passover. And so he brought back the Passover to them, and he brought back all sorts of reformations to them and transformed the way that they were thinking about stuff because he read the Bible. Some people have asked me why it is that we don't have really small texts for our passages that we use here for the reflections each week, and why we have like five, 16, sometimes 400 chapters that we expect you to read. It's because I want you to be able to re-experience the Bible as a whole. The Bible is written, and it was all cut up into chapters and verses, and that's fine for those of you who really need that kind of reference, and we need it, because I don't have the memory banks to memorize everything, so I have to say chapter 14, verse 3, then it brings us a reference. Brings it to recollection. But, but God is saying, you read the whole story, you read big pictures of it. It's like when you go to a great concert and you're listening to a great piece of music and, and you would enjoy the violin on its own or you enjoy the cello on its own or, or the timpani on its own, but when they put it together, it's music. It's powerful. It talks to you. And the Bible, just one verse on its own, when people say, what's your favorite verse? I just want to throw up. I really don't have a favorite verse. No. I'm not, I don't have a favorite verse because one verse doesn't cut it. It's the Bible, the books all together, the books combined together. When they come together, they bring you these kind of stories. And Josiah sat down because he probably couldn't read properly. That's why they read it to him and he listened. Shema, he listened to the word of God. Sometimes you just need to listen to the word of God. If you don't like to read the five, six chapters each time, listen to the chapters. Uh, Create space in your life to do this. I really want us to get back into the Word of God. As who said it? One of the kids said it. We've got to read our Bibles more. We've got to connect more with it. That's what, that's what we said. We've got to be connected to it. And God is calling us to say, read this stuff. And you may say, oh, Pastor, it's so difficult. It's so boring. Listen, you have read novels for two hours that are a waste of entire time of your life. You know, that you get to the end and you think to yourself, what was that about? I don't know. I could have told you the ending before it began. You sat in movies for longer than two hours, and at the end you're thinking, oh my goodness, and I paid for that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Here, you don't have to pay for it. It's free. It's in your pew. <laughs> you grab it, you take it home, and you read it. Two hours, you can read the Gospel of John multiple times and enjoy it. And just imagine if you start to, to grab the big picture of it, what is it that God is going to be saying to you? And God is constantly saying to us, but, but the difficulty is, is that we are either indifferent or we are defiant when it comes to the word of God. You understand that? That's what Judah was like. They were, and Israel was like that for a lot, indifferent or defiant when it came to the word of God. They're like, ah, I don't want to read this. I don't want to understand the Torah. I don't want to understand the Bible. I just left it alone. So and imagine if you were indifferent or defiant in your marriages. If you were defiant, you would be rebellious inside there. You would be opposed to, somebody says, hey, you know, shall we have dinner tonight at six? I just hate the idea of dinner. <laughs> no, never, never eaten again. You know, I mean, you're opposed, you're rebellious. So what if you were indifferent about it? Well, I don't care. When do you want to have dinner? I don't know, you decide. I couldn't be bothered to think about it. What do you want to eat? I don't care. You know, as long as it's in your mouth and you swallow it, you know, I mean, who cares? You know, I'm apathetic about it. People would eventually in their marriages be like, well, don't you care about anything that's going on in our life? 
Imagine if you're that way with God, where you're rebellious with God, you're defined against God. God, I'm not gonna read your book, I hate the Bible, I don't believe in the Bible. There are things inside it I disagree with, therefore I throw the whole thing away. Because you, such a smart person, think that you've got it all together. And you haven't even understood the depth and the complexity of it. What if you were indifferent about the Bible? I'm like, oh, just so many things to read, so many things to see, so many flowers to pick. I mean, I don't know. I'm not opposed to the Bible. Just, uh, I'll wait till Sabbath. And then I'll pretend that I read it there. God is saying, this is what happens when you're indifferent or whether you're, you're defined against it, you'll end up being a place of exile and God is calling us all the way out of there. Final question that we have today, question number three. Look at your worship guides. How do you recover from putting all your eggs in the wrong basket? See that question? How do you recover from putting all your eggs in the wrong basket? And, and just so you know, I'm only saying it this week because if I said this sentence next week, I'd be in so much trouble. So I just wanna let you know, when I'm talking about eggs in the basket, nothing to do with Easter, just a, a metaphor, and it's not related to next week, just today, eggs in the basket. All right, you with me? Good, all right, so how do you prevent yourself from putting all your eggs in the basket? Because all of their eggs were in Josiah's basket. Eight-year-old king, grew up faithful to God, this is the one who's recovered every worship and covenant. He's recovered the Passover. I mean, this is the one. Sadly, though, he goes out of battle against, I think it was the Egyptians, and he goes out of battle. He dresses up like one of the foot soldiers. Uh, he gets an arrow, gets wounded, takes a couple of days and passes away, and he dies. And then everybody's like, but I put all my eggs in the basket there, and it's gone. Josiah's gone from there. And they feel like this is just a disaster now. What happens? We have no hope. How do we recover from putting all of our trust and all of our faith in this one man instead of putting all of our faith and all of our trust in God? Well, Josiah had three sons. He had two wives. Uh, one of them was Zebda and the other one Habtul. And the two wives fought against each other. And they had sons, and their sons fought against each other. So the first wife didn't actually get to have her son, the oldest boy, who was 25 years old, to become king. Instead, the second wife got her son to become king, Jehoaz. He was king for three months. And then Pharaoh captured him, put him into prison. So then the first son said, well, I'm the oldest one from the other, from the other wife. And he said, I'm the oldest one. I should become king. He became king, and he was a disaster absolutely creating havoc and all sorts of terrible things taking place. Then his son, Jehoiakim, who's 18 years old, he becomes king, but he's captured by the Babylonians, taken into exile, so that his uncle, Zedekiah, who's 21 years old at this time, ends up becoming king. He was like, please, pick me, pick me. I should become king. And he does become king, and he doesn't follow what the prophet says, and he disobeys everything again. Again, all of the eggs in the basket, and this king, not only does he lose everything, but he rebels so hard, he goes to battle against them. And the prophet Jeremiah says, no, don't do this, give up on this, go, just live with them, trust me, it's gonna be okay. All of this is taking place at the same time inside here. And the whole story of First and Second Kings, by the time you get to Zedekiah, the final king, his sons are killed in front of him, and then his eyes are scourged so that he becomes blind, so the final sight he has in his memory is the death of his children because he was defiant against God. He was indifferent against God. He had no care for God. And God said, you have caused pain on people. Men and women killed their children because you were king. 
People ate each other because they were king. You were king. You did evil, and God will not tolerate this evil anymore. And you are done. And he was taken away. And this whole book, the story of First and Second Kings, is really, as I said right at the beginning of every single week when we've gone through here, is to transform our identity in God. To know that God is more. God is more than David. God is more than Solomon. Remember when Jesus refers to Solomon's temple? Even the flowers, the little lilies, are prettier than Solomon's temple. Remember that text? God is saying God is more than Solomon's temple. God is more than Egypt. He's more than Assyria. He's more than Babylon. He's more than all the empires that follow that, as we'll look in the fall. He's more than Rome. He's more than the British. He's more than the French. He's more than the Germans. God is more than America. God is more. But we put all of our trust in things that we see very simply right before us. And we hope that that's what it is. And God is saying, look, you are divided and you don't understand this, but God is more. Final text I want you to turn with me to is in Luke chapter 3. It's page 592 in your Bibles, but Luke chapter 3. Luke is very intentional about the way that he articulated this. Because he wants to remind us that God is more more than anything that you could ever imagine. In Luke chapter three, verses one to two, it says here this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia, and Trachonitus, and Licinius, and tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Ananias and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. At this one point, when you think all of these people are the leaders, the word of God comes and he delivers through John that Jesus the Messiah is coming. When all your trust is placed in all these small irrelevant things, God says that he is more. Next week we get to celebrate that God is more. That our hope is not in us, but that our hope is in God. When you're impatient and insensitive, may Jesus bless you with gentleness and a heart that is tender. When you feel overcome by seen or unseen forces, may Jesus bless you with strength against evil principalities. When people are sickly, feeble, or frail, and get in your way, may Jesus bless you with compassion and care. When you feel cowardly or unworthy, may Jesus bless you with courage daring to be who you are. When people who don't live up to your moral, spiritual, or living standards irritate you, may Jesus bless you with openness, understanding, and respect. When you are confused by doctrines, dictates, and directives, may Jesus bless you with power to make Jesus all. Amen. <laughs>